0: Well, this morning is um, week eight of our series, a few more weeks to go. And last Sunday morning, if you were here or if you watched online, we talked a lot about how there is a day coming where judgment will unfold. These moments when we watch or see or experience deep injustice in a world that's filled with evil, where we might cry out, why is this happening to me? Why does this have to happen to others? What did we do to deserve this? Kind of like that's the heart of those questions. And we talked very clearly about there is a day coming where Jesus, the righteous and just judge, will return, and he will judge all things. He gets into the nitty-gritty of our lives, into the motivations of our souls, and he will, in this moment, separate sheep from goats. And for me, as a follower of Jesus, I am eagerly awaiting this day. Like, I can't wait for the world to be set right. I can't wait for evil to be kind of sponged out of existence. I can't wait for the cosmos to be exactly what God had designed them to be. And while I wait for that day, I am praying and working and living my life trying to, with the help of the Spirit of God, to minister to people who don't know the Lord because I want them to be on the right side of that day. Jesus talks in Matthew 25 that on the day of his return, there will be people that recognize that this day is now upon them. They will be overcome with grief, and knowing that at the core of their life, they have been wrong the entirety of their life, the better option for them instead of being judged by Jesus is to have a mountain fall on their skull and crush them. This day is coming. The great day of judgment and for the Christ follower, I long for evil to finally be dealt with once and for all. This was our conversation last week. And it sets up where we go today because it's a, it's a close cousin to this and knowing that there is this day coming out there, it shapes how I live now as it relates to matters of, of justice itself. It's not explicitly outlined in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's, it's there in all the spaces where Solomon is looking, where I looked here and I saw injustice, and I looked here and I saw injustice, and I looked here and it was evil, where there was supposed to be righteousness. It's all through it, which begs the question, well, well what do you do with these situations? I am waiting for this day for Christ's return And while I wait for that day, I am to live my life as a follower of Jesus in a particular way, which is really the question for today. It's on the screen. With the coming judgment in mind, how does the Christ follower live as it relates to justice? And I want to preface this. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, this will probably be one of the most bizarre dialogues that you ever have with me or that you'll hear me say. If you are a Christ follower, this might be one of the most painful ones that you ever sit through because it will confront us on all kinds of things that are deeply rooted in all of our hearts, mine included. So that said, let's uh, pause for a word of prayer and just seek the Lord's help as we work our way through this conversation together this morning. Our gracious and heavenly Father, you are a God of grace and mercy and judgment where you will preside over your world and you will separate sheeps and goat from how we live our life in response to who you are. And for those of us that have said yes to you and we follow you by faith, there is a particular way that you call us to live as it relates to justice issues while we wait for the day of judgment to get here. May this bring glory to you, may this confront us, may this empower us, may this Shape us by your spirit. We ask these things in your name. Amen. To get us started this morning, I want to put up some passages on the screen for you to read with me. Uh, and all of it, we're trying to establish um, some, some realities connected to who God is. Number one, it's Psalm 82, 3 and 4, where the psalmist writes, Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Isaiah 1, 17, this is the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And Jeremiah 22:3, 3, do what is just and right, rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed, do no wrong or violence to the foreigner or to the fatherless or to the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Micah 6, this is one of the big ones out of the Old Testament, where the prophet Micah rhetorically asks God's people, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And then we roll over into the New Testament, and Jesus, the Lord himself, says to us, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You have you give a tenth of your spice, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He says the same thing to a different audience in Luke chapter 11, 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. These are just several passages, and there are hundreds of them that speak of God's heart for justice. And then you go into the dozens of stories that reveal God's heart for justice. We'll highlight three of them. They're on the screen. The first one is not really a story, but it's rather hardwired into the Old Testament law. And for for some of you that love the law... Well, this is going to get awkward for you fast. Um, The year of Jubilee is a celebration that is to happen every 50 years inside of God's people. And the year of Jubilee is basically this. If you have debt, the one who carries your debt is to cancel it so that you can be free of that debt. Because God's heart is that no family should be generationally stricken with poverty. So if something happened to you on your farm and you needed to hire out workers... And you need to pay off all kinds of things because life happens. That every 50 years, whatever debt you had, whatever land you gave away to cover your expenses, everything was returned back to the original family so that your children could start afresh and not be burdened with debt upon debt upon debt. This was woven into God's law. Do you know how many times God's people actually applied this law to their culture? Zero. Why? Because smart businessmen said, that's bad business. Why would I release someone from the debt that, that they have taken on? That's called greed. Woven into the heart of God was every 50 years, all debts are canceled. That land is returned to the original family. That whatever money you owe is all canceled so that your children can start afresh on the land you have and not deal with debts from your parents or your grandparents and so on and so forth. Another story that reveals the heart of God is the story of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi returned to Israel. They were living in Moab. They have nothing. All their husbands are dead. And Naomi tells Ruth, listen, there's this one guy. He's a God-fearing man. His name is Boaz. He has some fields and you should go into the fields and glean as the law provides. Again, in the law, it said poor people can go into a farmer's field, into the corners and along the edges and take what they want so they can provide food for their families. Ruth goes out into the field of Boaz, and there Boaz notices this strange Moabite woman. And as the story unfolds, through God's heart for justice, the entire lineage of Naomi and Ruth is completely redeemed through Boaz and the marriage that unfolds. It's a beautiful story of God's justice for the the oppressed, for the widow. And then this last story is the story of Hagar. Hagar is the slave girl of Abraham. We kind of skip over this part sometimes where Sarah... Abram's wife is like, maybe God meant that the child promise is going to come through you sleeping with our slave girl. What a conundrum for Abraham. Like, you're my wife, and you're asking me to sleep with another woman because you think somehow God's promise is going to be fulfilled in this, and Abraham stupidly is like, all right, and he sleeps with her. (laughs) And a son is born, Ishmael, and wouldn't you know it, jealousy reigns inside the house of Abraham there's quarreling, there's fighting, and Sarah finally forces Abram to kick her and Ishmael out of the family. And essentially, that is a death sentence because you are leaving the family unit and you're going out into the desert to fend for yourself. And that story is a heartbreaking, beautiful story where Hagar is out with her son, places him under a bush to basically watch him die. And God's like, I see you. And he comes to her and he rescues her and says, your son too will also be a great nation. Hagar is the victim in this story and is penalized because of what she did to her master and then is forced out to die. And God saves her and rescues and redeems her family. So when we ask, how does the Christ follower live as it relates to justice, while we wait for the great day of judgment? Well, in order to really unpack that question well, We wanted to work through those passages because it reveals three things. Number one, it tells us that justice is very near and dear to the heart of God. Number two, it tells us that justice is something that is learned in the passages like Isaiah, learn to do right. And it tells us that justice is something that we can't neglect as a follower of Jesus. If we go back and work through each of these statements, well, why is justice near and dear to the heart of God? Well, when you read through those passages and all the other ones that we didn't read, you will discover that there are categories of people that Jesus is highlighting to us. The widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed, the foreigner, and the list goes on. Every single one of these people, these human beings, they are image bearers of the living God because he is the one who has made them. This is unique to Christian thought and Christian life and Christian doctrine. There is no other religion or philosophy that has intrinsic value connected to every single human life. That is not a Canadian value. That is a kingdom of God value. Because we believe that God is the author of every single human being. That he's made us, that he's fashioned us, that he's formed us. And every single human life has this intrinsic value because they carry around inside of them the very image of God which has been impressed upon them he loves them he's died for them and he longs to redeem them and God himself can't stand he hates he loathes systems and or persons that create and keep people in spaces of oppression he gets real fiery on those things Israel as a nation gets themselves in severe trouble because they do the one thing that God said not to do. When you come up out of the land of Egypt and when you move into the land, you are not to do to others what the Egyptians had done to you. And sure enough, that's what they did. And God gets super angry with them. You are not allowed to have slaves. You are not allowed to oppress a people. This is an affront to who I am, to the people that I have made, to the people that I longed to redeem and save through my son. God longs for his sons and daughters to lean into the conversation of justice because when we do, we learn to live rightly and we are partnering with him to minister to the most vulnerable people in the world, to, in a weird way, bring heaven and earth together, to, in a very practical way, set the captive free, to release the prisoners from whatever bondage that they are in. God has a heart for justice because he loves every single human being on the planet. And then the whole justice is learned space. We have to learn how to do this. Because it's foreign to us. It's not a natural posture for the human being. The natural posture, because we are selfish, because we're flawed with sin, is to look after me and mine. When you have children, I'm gonna, this is a spoiler, your kids' first word are not going to be, Mom and Dad, you're the most amazing people in the world and I love you <laughs> deeply. Their first word is mine. No. <laughs> That is sin at work in the heart, and they're establishing their personal kingdom early. And as parents, you break that kingdom early. Or they're going to be 45 in your basement. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But we have to realize that this is foreign to us. And it's difficult for us to do justice. Because if you follow it all the way to the end, you'll see as we go through this that it might actually cost you something. It might cost you comforts. It might cost you reputation. It might cost you relationship. Because to go down this road in the way that Jesus instructs us, it certainly costs him and his followers then. I don't know why we would think it doesn't cost us and his followers now. But it is something that is learned because it's foreign to us. It's difficult for us. And lastly, it's awkward for us. When you watch something unfold that's wrong and evil... There is this rightful, how can they get away with this? And we want to move in that space and bring relief and bring justice to that space. And that's not a bad thing because that's born out of God's heart for justice. The issue is when we start doing the mathematical equation of what that might look like, we're like, oh, I don't know how to do this well. I don't know if I'm allowed to do this. And sometimes that that awkwardness kind of causes us to kind of pull back a little bit. And our hearts break because we want to do something, but we don't know how to actually do it. And this is where we're going to set up camp, how we actually do this, how we speak to spaces of injustice, how do we, quote unquote, live rightly, which is the Hebrew definition of the word justice, learning to live rightly. How do we live right when we see people who are pushed to the margins? How do we live right When people are mistreated or there are evil agendas in the world, how do we live right when people are racialized and marginalized because of the color of their skin? And what gets real tricky real fast is some of these, quote-unquote, groups of people, deep down in your heart, you might actually view them as though they are your enemy. How do I defend people who I fundamentally disagree with on matters of life? How do I argue for people and bring justice to people that I don't actually like the choices that they make? How do, I, how do I go to bat for someone who I think is a problem to the Christian worldview? And this is where this gets really tricky really, really fast. Church family, Jesus makes it very clear how we live right, how we bring justice into a myriad of situations that we would find ourselves and it all begins with this posture of prayer where i am praying to align my heart with god's jesus is the one who tells me to pray for my enemies jesus is the one who tells me to pray for the ones who persecute me he's the one who tells me to pray for the ones who persecute you why is he telling us to pray for that person well twofold first And this is the easy one, and sometimes we just stop here. We pray that that person would stop what they're doing and see the error of their ways. That's what we often pray for. But the second part of that is that I would actually, through my prayer life, begin to see in that person, the evildoer, the image of God in them. That I would align my heart with the same way God sees them someone who is lost, someone who is fractured, someone who is deeply troubled with life, just like us. And that I would move to them, rather than hatred and in violence, move to them with compassion and mercy. I pray for my enemies, yes, so that they might change, but also for my own heart, that I would speak of them and view them as though they are precious creations of God. And when I view someone that way, It compels me into right living. Because I value them. I see in them the intrinsic value that they have as a human being. Because without prayer, listen, um, the others in your life, they will always be your enemy. They will always be people that you have to outsmart and beat in whatever game of justice you're trying to play. They will always be a people to you who are nothing more than a threat. And somehow, you want your agenda to win and their agenda to stop And without prayer, that's how that conversation unfolds. We pray first to align my heart with God's. Number two is we pray to discern the third road. The third road. If there is one thing that I want you to remember from this morning, it is this part right here. We pray to discern the third road. When we see injustice happen, our quick default response is to pick a side. The right side... The left side, this side, that side, whatever. And ironically, it doesn't matter what side you're on, the response to speak into such injustice, it's always the same. It's some form of aggressive protest or picket lines, some form of boycott or political pressure, petitions that we sign, or worse, hateful actions one to another. Or to say it another way, Our default response when we see an injustice is no different than what we see in Peter when he sees the wrongful arrest of Jesus. He instinctively reaches for his sword. This is what he's trained to do in his world. This is what we're trained to do in our world to instinctively reach for our sword. And Jesus, in this moment with Peter, points us to a different road. We don't respond to issues of injustice out of anger, we don't respond out of hatred or violence. We don't respond out of a spirit of vengeance either. We don't respond evil with evil. These are statements and phrases and concepts that Jesus communicates to us all through the New Testament. Jesus, while on the earth, teaches us what to do in these moments when we face injustice. He teaches us what this third road looks like. And it's a different road from passivism. Jesus was not passive Read the text. He is not passive. He confronts. He challenges. It just looks different from how you want to. And Jesus is not like a militant activist either. He is about the kingdom of heaven. He is about the agenda of his heavenly father. The third road, this other way we go forward in spaces of injustice, deep at its core, It is showing great value to the evildoer or to the evil itself. And the action or the word spoken in that moment is to purposefully highlight the evil that is being done and it creates a moment for the evildoer to see their action and repent from it because they now see that person as a human being. And we do this, and, and here this is where this gets real awkward. If you've only started paying attention now, you are be like, this is the worst sermon in the world. Um, you do this through a re-understanding of the word shame. Through shame. Shame is a painful emotion caused by the consciousness of guilt. In other words, or to say it another way, this third way forward I am speaking and acting in a way that I would activate the consciousness of injustice in the other person. I'm speaking and acting in a way that it activates the consciousness of injustice in the other person. Because if I believe they are created in the image of God, then conversations of justice are somewhere wired inside of that person. And in their sin, they've gone wayward, and I'm trying to activate this thing that's deep on the inside, and you're like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Take it up with Jesus. Because the issue always becomes, and this is a real issue, we hear Jesus' word of instruction, whether it's on this or anything, and we're like, nope, I'm going to do my own thing. Okay. Then don't be surprised if what you do does not bring about the results you want. And sometimes... Even when we go down the instruction that Jesus invites us into, it doesn't bring about the results you want. I am not called for the outcome. I'm called into the action that he asks me to do by faith. I might never see the outcome. I might never see that evil corrected. I am not about that. I'm about what have you called me to do, and how do I do my part in exposing this through this alternate way that you have invited me into? How do I activate inside of you this other person that God has made? How do I activate inside of you this consciousness of injustice? We see this teaching in Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 39 to 41. Jesus tells his followers, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. In Jesus' day, and this is directly related to cultural dynamics, in Jesus' day that help us understand why he would say this, it is linked to the reality of what a Roman soldier was in his time. A Roman soldier was essentially the boss. They could do whatever they wanted to do to whomever they wanted to do without any cause whatsoever. If a soldier decided that he wanted to use you for some purpose, resistance was ultimately futile. That person that the Roman soldier is beckoning, they better be quick to fetch water. They better be quick to carry the load or to give your belongings away or else. If that person did not perform the task that that soldier was asking, then you could be sure that a backhand was not far behind. Hence the text read, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek towards him. And Jesus is not saying that you are to invite a good beating on yourself. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. If they hit you on your right cheek, then you are to offer up your left. And there's a play on a dynamic that's true in this time-place. The right hand of a human in the first century, this was the clean hand. The left hand was the dirty hand. They didn't have majestic back in the day. You do the math. All of your interactions with a human were with your right hand. And when those in power, whether it was a master over a slave, or a husband over a wife, or a Roman over a Jew... When they struck the inferior person in their mind, they swung with the back of their right hand, thus striking you on your right cheek. And Jesus then tells you to expose your left. And he's calling them into the third road in this moment. He is saying not to retaliate in anger, nor do we shrink back in some form of false sense of meekness. Jesus wants to force the one who is in power to treat the other human being as though they are equal. He wants the inferior to stand up and demand that they be treated as an equal. Thus, if I turn and expose my left, I am saying to the offender, now you're gonna hit me like I'm a real human. Now you're gonna really come at me. And in this, maybe consciously activate this, I'm treating a human in a way that's awful in this action. Same is true about the instruction to go an extra mile. There was an actual law in first century Roman world where a Roman soldier by law could force you to carry his pack or his gear for one mile. Didn't matter if you were headed to Costco in Jerusalem, if that soldier showed up and said, I want you to carry my stuff by law, you had to submit to that unjust law. And Jesus says, if this happens to you, You carry it the mile, and then you carry it one more. Again, highlighting this third row. He wants to force the issue of how unjust this law is. He wants the person to stay inside of the unjust law and go further than what this law demands and expose the person who's abusing their power over the other that they might see the atrocity that's unfolding. He wants to, in a weird and wonderful way, Shame the one who is abusing a law that's awful in the first place. He wants them to think about how they are treating another human being. Turning the other cheek and walking the extra mile. These are not blanket statements that say Christ followers are simply to accept a certain level of brutality in their life. No, this is in fact the third road of motivating others to change. Specifically, it is a way by which we would reform people particularly those who abuse their power over us. If all we do is meet evil with evil, blow for blow, the cycle of violence will never end. Violence will beget more violence, and so on and so forth, unless the Christ follower introduces a third way. Jesus does not command us to get beat up. He does call us to lay our lives down. And this is where it might actually go, But he doesn't tell us to get beat up. He commands us to activate people's consciousness of injustice inside of them. We pray, first off, to align my heart with God's. We pray to discern the third road. And then we pray for courage and strength. Because there will be moments in your life where you have prayed, where you have seen the third road, And then God, by his grace and mercy, will plant you in a space. Then you act. And you're going to need a different kind of courage and strength that's beyond your own self to do that. I'm going to show you a clip in just a moment. This is a true story. It's a moment inside the movie Hidden Figures. It's a story of a black woman who was a mathematical wizard who was employed by NASA. And I want you to see in the clip how she stays inside of the lanes of an unjust law. She stays inside of the lanes of an unjust law where God brings about for her a moment to expose the evil and shame everyone into repentance. Let's watch this clip, and then we'll speak to it in a moment. Where have you been? Everywhere I look, you're not where I need you to be. It's not my imagination. Now, where do you go every day? To the bathroom, sir. To the bathroom? For 40 minutes a day? What are you doing there? We're T minus zero here. I put a lot of faith in you. There's no bathroom for me here. What do you mean, there's no bathroom for you here? There is no bathroom. There are no colored bathrooms in this building, or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. And I can't use one of the handy bikes. Picture that, Mr. Harrison. My uniform, skirt below my knees, my heels, and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog day and night. Living off a of coffee from a pot none of you want to touch. So, excuse me, if I have to go to the restroom a few times a day. There is but one emotion that every person in that room feels in that moment. Shame. It is a beautiful picture of the third road. She has the right to be angry. But in her anger, she does not sin. She exposes an evil law, an evil rule that devalues a human being. At an hour and a half of the day, she has to travel across campus to go to the washroom. And she boldly speaks to the issue and shames everyone in the room. The next scene in that clip is Kevin Costner at the bathroom with a crowbar, absolutely destroying the sign that says, colored bathroom. And then he's done to say, everyone goes to the bathroom wherever they want. And you're like, that was the 1960s. So listen, this happens all the time. This happens all the time. God invites us through Jesus to live out the third road, to expose unjust rules, to activate the consciousness of injustice in people, to force the issue where we are to be treated and valued as a human being. These are consistent with what we see in the New Testament. Jesus himself, we'll start with him. Jesus wrongfully arrested, wrongfully beaten, wrongfully killed, and through it all, he carries himself in a way that's unique. I want to read to you a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 12 that speaks to the third road that Jesus puts on display in his own life. This is in twelve. This is the Matthew, the writer, speaking of who Jesus is, and says this: Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one in whom I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Here's the lines that we read over. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice shout in the streets. A bruised reed he will be, but it will not break. A smoldering wick, and he will not be snuffed out until he has brought justice through his victory. Jesus on the cross dying, and off to the right, there's a soldier on a hot mic, and he says, surely this must be the Son of God. Surely this guy is exactly who he has said he is. Because it's different than any other criminal that we've ever treated this way. Surely this is the one. Surely he is exactly who he says he is. We can go to Paul and Silas in Acts 16. They are thrown in jail. The Roman soldiers that throw them in jail do not do due diligence, and they do not discover that they are, in fact, Roman soldiers. And Romans do not treat Romans the way Romans treat Gentiles. And the jailer, the chief jailer, the magistrate of the city, comes to discover that he has Roman citizens in a Roman jail that did not follow Roman protocol. And they're deeply embarrassed by this. So they send the jailer into the cell, and they're like, you guys can go. Paul and Silas sit there, and they're like, we're not going anywhere, until the magistrate comes down and apologizes and walks us out together. We're not going anywhere. Highlighting the injustice in this space. Finding the third road is challenging. It's challenging. I'm not saying that it's easy. I remember early in our life with our children, our oldest was on the bus. It was a weird moment because it's funny how you preach things and you're like, oh, now I have to apply this. And this is kind of one of those moments. And Eden came home and he's like, Dad, I'm not going back on the bus. And I'm like, well, yeah, you are. He's like, no, I'm not. And there was this kind of back and forth. I'm like, well, why don't we go back on the bus? And he showed us his back and had a huge five star on, on his back. And a five star was like a code word when you get a slap, with like an open hand, just And you'd leave like all five fingers. It's several of them on his back. And he's like, I keep getting hit. And I tell my bus driver, but no one does anything. I'm not going back on the bus. Now, this is the, the first road that comes to mind is, who's that kid's dad? Yeah. Justice is going to be found. We're going to send a personal invite meet behind East Wilshire <laughs> around 9.30 at night. I'm going to have some friends in the bushes just in case he's bigger than me. <laughs> and we're going to sort this out. And justice will reign. And I'll defend my son's honor. And then I'm praying that through, asking for the Lord's help and all that. And all the while through, he's like, this isn't how we do this. This isn't how we do this. This is not the third road. And I get up the next morning, I'm like, you're getting on the bus. And here's what we're going to do. If you get hit again, you're going to tell your bus driver again. And if your bus driver passes it off, then I will invite the bus driver and the principal and the vice principal and the school board director and all those involved in the busing system. We're going to have a meeting and you're going to walk in and you're going to show them you're back. And you will make everyone feel like a fool in this moment because they didn't listen to you. He's like, I'll get on the bus. Now, I think he went with like (laughs) vengeful spirits, but, but it was like, I want to expose this in this moment through an alternate way, through an alternate method. Just last week, um, one of our kids come home and talked about some of the things your teacher was saying in the classroom about how Calvary, and it's kind of fake, and it didn't really happen. And ironically, the school board has this new policy, like Report It campaign. I, I think I know kind of the agenda behind it, but I'm like, I'm gonna use their own rules. And I fill out this big, long file, this big, long claim, and I'm like, one, whoever that teacher is, like, you imagine what would happen if someone said that the Holocaust didn't happen? Imagine what would happen if uh, someone was being mean-spirited. Like, um, imagine if, and frame the whole dialogue with them, and the principal called, and I said, well, listen, I appreciate the call. I said, we're fine. We, like, we teach our kids this is going to be part of your life. We're going to be bullied and made fun of. It's awful, and we feel sad for you, and we enter in, and we'll cry with them. But here's why I filed the complaint, because I'm building a file where all of these other things that are injustice one day, one day, might get heard, and it will expose an awful lot of things, using their rules against them, so to speak, not of a spirit of vengeance, not of a spirit of violence at all, but simply I loathe and my heart breaks for some of the things that unfold in our world. and trying to figure out how you speak into it in a way that reflects the goodness of God. When you see something, we have to act. But we can't act like everybody else acts. There's too much at stake in this. We're not angry, hateful people. We're not. We carry around the light of the world. We carry around the goodness of God. We carry around the knowledge, the deep knowledge, that every single human being has immense value from the living God. And I have to engage with them on that premise because God loves them and values them and wants to redeem them. As John and team come back, I want to remind you of these three things. I want you to begin now in your life, every day of your life, to pray for your enemies. To pray for the ones who persecute you. To pray for the ones that you want judgment to rain down on for one reason or another. And I'm asking you to pray this way because Jesus is the one who invites us into this space that I would view my enemies through the same lens that God sees them. People in whom he died for people in whom he has made beautiful creations that he loves and values and cherishes and is leaving the 99 to redeem the one. And all of the stories of looking for the lost coin and the lost penny and the lost sheep, this is why he loves people, all of them. And as I pray to align my heart, I am praying that I would view everyone in my life, enemies first, through the same heart that God has towards them. And then I begin praying, and this is the big one, that you discern the third road. That you discern the third road through these moments. Because Jesus speaks to it. He demonstrates what this looks like. It's not passivism, it's not militant activism. It's something uniquely different that we are trying to activate inside the soul of another person their own sense of justice, that they might be confronted with that evil, turn from it, so that they would treat and value the other human as though they have value. And then last but not least, that you pray for strength and courage that's beyond your own. Because when the moment arrives, it might cost you something. I can't imagine the nerves going through the lady in the NASA laboratory can't imagine that sense of like here we go begin praying for these things now in your life, for your own life for your family's life but more importantly for the ongoing declaration of the kingdom of heaven, the God in whom we worship and serve, his name is Jesus and he invites us into this place would you pray with me? Our gracious and heavenly Father, you invite us into, in some ways, uncharted territories. And it's a beautiful space to go. Where you walk with us, you provide all that we need. In a complex world, I am so glad that the Spirit of God is a dynamic force that leads me in whatever unique path I go as I long to speak in the spaces of injustice for your goodness and glory. In your name we pray. Amen.